You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Wood, an adolescent fellow also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and one of my former classmates from residency. So I'm so excited to welcome her. So thank you, Dr. Wood, for joining us. Thanks, Katie. Good morning. Thanks. So we're going to be talking today about PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is when people at very high risk for HIV take HIV medicines daily to lower their chances of getting infected. Studies have shown that PrEP is highly effective for for preventing HIV if it is used as prescribed, but much less effective when it's not taken consistently, as are most things. So Dr. Wood, tell us more about what PrEP is and how does it work? So PrEP is basically any medication delivery that we can use before people are exposed to HIV to prevent them from becoming HIV infected. So there's a little bit of an alphabet soup when we talk about (laughs) HIV medications and Mm -hmm. HIV prevention. And for years, we've had something called PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis, which is where people, after an HIV exposure, would take three different HIV medications for 28 days to prevent themselves from becoming HIV infected. PrEP is a new idea. Um, This has really come about in the last three to five years. And the idea is, instead of waiting for an exposure and trying to prevent HIV after the exposure, we build up an amount of antiretroviral uh, medication within the blood and in the tissue that will be exposed to prevent HIV infection from happening um, before the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, right now in the United States, PrEP is um, an oral daily medication called tenofovir amtricitabine. Um, the trade name for that's Truvada, and I'll probably mm-hmm. just use Truvada for yep. the rest of the podcast Thank to keep things yep. uh, yeah. simple. Um, and that was approved in 2012 to be used as PrEP, but we have used it for over a decade to treat HIV um, in adolescents and adults. Um, but PrEP is going to be Truvada for not much longer. So we have a lot of things coming down the pipeline, including long-acting injectable forms of PrEP, vaginal rings, rectal microbicides. Um, So stay tuned because there's a lot of exciting breakthroughs in the field. Yeah, this is like super exciting futuristic stuff from <laughs> my my greatest dreams and imagination yeah it's really cool. amazing to see it all um coming to be part of reality now yeah that's amazing so people who are high risk for hiv should consider taking prep so who does that include so the centers for disease control and prevention have actually put out a really nice clinical practice guideline that addresses that question in addition to sort of everything under the sun that clinicians would need to know to prescribe prep Um, But what's interesting is that if you look at different organizations, people have different guidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have the CDC guidelines, the World Health Organization has put out guidelines, and the International AIDS Society has put out guidelines. So I like to start by thinking about what's common in those guidelines. So the first thing is that to start PrEP, you need to be definitively HIV negative. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. But before anyone starts, we want to make sure absolutely that they don't have HIV because PrEP is good for prevention, but it's not enough medication to use for treatment. 
And then the question becomes, how do we define high risk? So in the global sense, we usually think about it in terms of what's the prevalence of HIV. Um, and depending on which guideline that you look at, if you have more than a two to 3% prevalence of HIV in a specific population, then you should consider PrEP just sort of globally in that population. Wow. Um, so in the United States, what populations have a prevalence that that's high? Well, one population is young men who have sex with men and transgender women who have sex with men. Mm. Um, and the CDC guidelines basically recommend PrEP for any young, we use the word MSM, or transgender women who have sex with men who aren't in a monogamous relationship with a confirmed HIV negative partner with whom they're using condoms consistently. Mm -hmm. So I'll break that down a little bit because it's a little yeah. bit of a, um, a tricky wordplay. So basically we think about people being at significant uh, risk for HIV if they have partners who are of HIV positive status. So if one person in a relationship is positive, one is negative, we call that a serodiscordant relationship. Mm -hmm. And for any negative partners in a serodiscordant relationship, we should consider PrEP. Okay. Or if someone is in a relationship with someone whose HIV status they don't know, um, who has significant risk factors. So if your partner is using IV drugs or if your partner is a man who's having sex with other men, mm -hmm. we would also consider PrEP in those situations. But there's some other categories that I think of too, because for those of us who see teenagers um, for our patients, we know that a lot of the time our patients don't know what their partners are doing. Right. So if we're basing our risk on knowing that your partner is HIV negative or knowing who else your partner may be partnered with, I think we're missing the boat for um, teens and young adults. Mm -hmm. So I think of anyone who has multiple sexual partners, anyone who's had a recent bacterial sexually transmitted infection, or or has recurrent viral STIs like mm -hmm. herpes, anyone who engages in transactional sex, so that means trading sex for food, housing, um, money, mm -hmm. um, and anyone who's in an HIV serodiscordant relationship. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that I tend to think about as being my highest risk population. Great. Thanks for spelling that out. It's obviously not very clear, and there's a, a broad range of people who could qualify. Absolutely. So. Um, it, We've heard a lot of education, obviously, which is great about HIV over the years. Uh, and so I would hope that the rates and the incidence of HIV in adolescence is very low in Philadelphia. But am I wrong? Or do you know kind of where we stand today? So the, the tough thing with HIV is that although we've made tremendous gains in the United States and in almost every demographic group, we see rates of HIV going down. Unfortunately, in young men who have sex with men and transgender women, um, particularly uh, in youth of color, we see those rates actually increasing. Mm. So in the United States, youth are disproportionately affected by HIV. And when we talk about numbers, in 2014, there were about 44,000 um, new HIV infections, and about one in four of those were in youth. Um, and when we look at that particular group of young MSM and trans women of color, um, over the last decade, uh, HIV incidence has increased by 87%. So it's a pretty dramatic increase. Um, and it really goes along with a lot of health disparities that we know about for young people of color living in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, last year, the CDC released data uh, showing that if you are a young African-American 
a man who has sex with men in the United States, your lifetime risk of acquiring HIV is one in two. Wow. So very high, and we know that most of that risk accrues in the sort of period up until 24 years. Right. Um, so we have a lot of work to do still. Yeah, so this is not a problem that's going away, and this is our patient population. So. Absolutely, this is who we're seeing in our clinics in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we also have to think about that issue of other sexually transmitted infections. So we know that um, having one STI increases your risk of having other STIs and increases your risk of acquiring HIV. And in West Philadelphia, we have one of the highest rates of chlamydia in the United States. So the high STI rates that we have in our clinic population definitely means that we're seeing people who we need to be thinking about PrEP for. Great. So what's the advantage of using PrEP daily versus using a condom and then using post-exposure prophylaxis if the condom breaks? Afterwards. Yeah, so I like to think about our Boy Scout motto, <laughs> let's be prepared. Um, right. So, you know, I think that's a great question and one that I hear a lot. So one is with post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to access. So um, if you had condomless sex or you had sex uh, where the condom broke and you're concerned about HIV risk, Time is of the essence, and we know for PEP to work well, you need to start it as soon as possible. So within 72 hours, but there's data that shows that even after 48 hours, we see really diminishing returns on efficacy. Okay. So for many of our young patients, for them to be able to navigate healthcare efficiently enough to get in, see a provider, get the medication, get the medication approved by their insurance, get to the pharmacy, and then we're talking about with PEP, um, two different pills that contain three drugs that you're using for 28 entire days. So adherence is significantly worse. Mm -hmm. um, we also don't have great randomized controlled trials on PEP. It's really become the standard of care because mm -hmm. we know that it works, but because we know that it works, it's no longer ethical to randomize people to get it or to not get it. So we don't right. know about the efficacy as well. So PrEP, there's no hustle to fix something after the fact. Patients are on the medication, they're protected. We know that efficacy can reach 98% in people who use it every single day and don't miss doses. Wow. So it works better, it's very safe, less side effects, and you have it on board. There's no scramble to be able to um, do prevention after the fact. Right, so time isn't of the essence as much as it is when, we, when you're looking at PEP. Absolutely. Great. So if I have a patient who seems like they are a candidate for PrEP, how do I get them started and who at CHOP is prescribing it? So there are a few clinics at CHOP that are now prescribing PrEP and there's been a really fantastic task force that's gotten together to try to increase access to PrEP within the CHOP care system. Um, so Cops Creek um, is providing preps for, PrEP for patients and they've really been spearheading a lot of the work around PrEP here at CHOP. Um, at the Carabots Clinic, the adolescent providers are um, prescribing PrEP as well. And for patients who don't get primary care at CHOP or get primary care at a CHOP center that isn't doing PrEP, they can always refer people to adolescent specialty care at 3550 Market Street where we're prescribing PrEP as well. But there's some things that you can do in your practice if you're not a PrEP prescriber just to get patients ready for PrEP. So I encourage all of our primary care physicians to start weaving PrEP education into their counseling for patients who are at risk of acquiring HIV. 
um, test for HIV. So certainly when everyone comes to us to start PrEP, it's really helpful if we have a recent negative HIV test in hand. Um, learn about the CDC practice guidelines because those are an excellent resource too. And then for patients who are in the community, the Department of Health clinics are providing PrEP to uninsured patients who are 18 and over. Mm -hmm. And then there's a fantastic clinic at the Youth Health Empowerment Project that runs a Monday night clinic that is just for PrEP that sees patients irrespective of insurance status and does just a wonderful job at comprehensive prevention for their patients. Great. Some really great resources and referral places mm -hmm. for us to send patients. So once a patient gets started on PrEP, what kind of monitoring happens during their course? Mm -hmm. So once we start someone on PrEP, we need to follow them pretty closely for a few reasons. One, and you mentioned this at the beginning, is that those great efficacy numbers for PrEP are really based on patients having excellent adherence. Mm -hmm. So um, that 98% number is for people who are high adherers, and we know that uh, efficacy for PrEP declines as adherence declines. So part of the reason that we follow people closely is to monitor adherence and support their adherence. Mm -hmm. So the CDC guidelines recommend that once you have someone stable on PrEP, to follow them every three months. Pretty much all of us who see youth are gonna follow people more often, mm -hmm. usually at least once a month when we get people started. We follow up HIV testing at least every three months in patients, um, and we do sexually transmitted infection testing every three months in our patients. Um, we follow uh, creatinine, so looking at kidney function, every six months in our PrEP patient because that's one of the more significant side effects that we can see from Truvada. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a one and done, we hand you a prescription and send you out the door. We follow patients really closely, but um, there's a phrase that I love that is from a researcher at Columbia, a woman named Sarit Golub, who um, came up with this idea that PrEP is the gateway drug to primary care. <laughs> so for a lot of our patients, patients who um, are really motivated to get into care for PrEP, it's actually an excellent way to do their lipid screening for our young adults, to monitor them for their hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, I managed to get a patient into cardiology at HOP for hypertension management because he was really motivated to come in for PrEP care. Mm -hmm. So we can build a lot of other primary care into those PrEP services too. So I think it's like a way for us to supersized preventative care for our adolescent and young adult patients. Yeah, if I was seeing them every one to three months, I could get a lot of care packed in there. Absolutely. So for the patients who are interested in PrEP, is it covered by federal and private commercial insurances? And if not, are there financial assistance programs for it? Yeah, it's a great question. So Medicaid covers PrEP, um, and we have not had a problem with any of our patients getting it covered. Um, so for now, but you know, things can always change in the future. Right. Private insurances really vary. Um, some of them can have significant co-pays for PrEP. Um, the nice thing is that Gilead Pharmaceuticals, which are the makers of Truvada, have a PrEP assistance program where basically depending on what your percentage is of income at the poverty level, um, if you're 18 or over, you can apply for pharmaceutical assistance from the, from the um, Gilead. And as the physician, you know, we are really the ones who are helping patients navigate that process. Mm -hmm. Depending on the insurance situation, if a patient is uninsured and um, is at a certain percentage of the poverty line, they can get three months of it at a time completely covered through the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And for patients with high co-pays, Gilead will often help with the co-pays as well. Great, it's good to hear that there are options out there. 
So we talked a lot about adherence being important. And what are the adherence rates with PrEP, at least in the studies that have been done or in your clinical practice? And do we need to worry about increasing antiretroviral resistance for the kids who aren't adherent mm -hmm. to it? So adherence rates are variable, and one thing that we have seen, unfortunately, in most PrEP studies, which is important for us here at CHOP, is that youth tend to be poorer adherers. So um, I was part of a clinical trial that CHOP was a site at um, that was the only PrEP study for uh, 15 to 17-year-olds and specifically also looked at 18 to 22-year-olds. Mm. Um, and what we found was that adherence was pretty high out of the gates, but decreased pretty rapidly over the 48 weeks of the study. And at mm -hmm. the midpoint, um, we were probably at about, I think, 60% adherence. Okay. Um, so things do slow over time. And again, that's why we really need to have patients in and really do what we can to support adherence. Um, the question about antiretroviral adherence, I'm sorry, antiretroviral resistance is one that a lot of people have been worried about. And mm -hmm. the idea with that is, if you have someone who's taking PrEP and they're not taking their PrEP all the time and they become HIV positive and you keep exposing them to two drugs, so tenofovir right. and emtricitabine, the two drugs in Truvada, right. um, and not the three drugs that they would need for treatment, will their HIV become resistant to Truvada? So the good news is, is that in clinical trials, we have not seen that happen. Mm -hmm. And in the real world data, there's been really minimal concerns about emergence of resistance. Great. Part of that is because we're so serious about testing people frequently for HIV and making sure that people remain HIV negative. It's another reason why we need to see people frequently while they're on PrEP. Mm -hmm. Great, good to know. That's reassuring, I think, for a lot of people to hear. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about testing for HIV in this high-risk population, but just kind of broadly as a last word, who in primary care should we be testing for HIV and when? Everyone. <laughs> so the CDC guidelines are to test between 13 and 64 years, um, and the USPSTF guidelines are from 15 to 65. The AAP recommends every adolescent should be tested at least once between 16 and 18 years. And as a rule of thumb, we really test everyone who's sexually active at least once a year. In addition, anytime someone comes in with a new partner or new risk factors, we should be testing. Mm -hmm. And anytime someone comes in with one STI, we should be testing for all of the other STIs because we really know that these are syndemic. So for all of your young women who come in with a positive chlamydia test, asymptomatic, please test them for HIV. Just follow up. It's part of good comprehensive care, and it's really the most important thing we can do um, for sexual health for many of our youth is to um, A, test them. B, once we get that negative result, think about do they need a higher intervention for sexual health? Is this someone who you need to think about PrEP? So we should really be linking HIV testing and PrEP counseling together. Thank you for giving us so much to think about. So many nice, you know, positive, exciting things about the future of HIV care for our patients, referral resources, community resources. You're an invaluable resource to us, Sarah. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, giving me a little bit of time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.